to come this Lord's Day to continue our study in the subject, the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Aaron's work was never finished, never completed, and he never rested from it. Aaron's sacrifices went on forever, but could never take away sin. Christ's sacrifice was once for all for our sins, and it took them all away. And therefore, Christ, our high priest, sat down. Indeed, our great man of Calvary, the Lord Jesus, is enthroned at the right hand of the power and glory now. The very one who takes away our sin before God is the very same one who lays his perfect obedience and righteousness upon us as our king of righteousness, as our king of peace, as our ruler. The comfort that God gives to us by his oath to Christ to be our priest forever is now seen to be far greater and more wonderful than we first believed. Hebrews 10 next informs us that the reason Christ sat down is because by his one sacrifice for our sin, he has forever perfected all those that he sanctified. Those who were by the will of God given to Christ to be saved, he has saved by sanctifying and perfecting us by his sacrifice for our sin. Perfection means our sins have been taken away by Christ's blood, forgiven and cleansed, and we have been declared righteous for Jesus' sake. God has been propitiated by the sacrifice of Jesus so that there is no wrath from God for our sins anymore. Previously, Hebrews has used the word perfected to now draw this contrast between the law and the animal sacrifices on the one hand, and the sacrifice of Christ. Hebrews 7 told us that the law made nothing perfect. That's because no man can be justified by keeping the law, for no one but Jesus can keep it. That is why God declared His new covenant whereby He would forgive our sins and change our hearts to love Him and to know Him. Then in Hebrews 9, we are told that the animal sacrifices could not make the poor sinner perfect in his conscience. For in our hearts and before God, we are still guilty for our sins under the old animal sacrifice scheme. And in Hebrews 10, we are told that those sacrifices, though they were often repeated, could never make poor sinners perfect. If they could have made us perfect, then they would be discontinued because the sinners would be guilt-free, purged of their sin, but now... By the blood of Jesus, we who trust in Him have been perfected forever, the text now tells us. That is why Christ's offering is one time only, because a sacrifice that makes us perfect before God need never be repeated. That Christ would indeed perfect His people by taking away their sins by His own sacrifice is a persistent theme throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 53, it is foretold that Christ would be punished for our crimes laid upon Him by God Himself. God would make Jesus' soul an offering for our sin. And when He saw of Christ suffering in that punishment, He would be satisfied. Christ would justify many people because He would bear our iniquities. And so it was 
that John the Baptist cried out the truth, that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away our sin. God has comforted us by His solemn oath to Christ, making Him our perpetual high priest who made Himself one sacrifice as God's Lamb in our place and for our crimes. And so He has perfected us forever before God. That is why we recite Christ's own words from that night He was betrayed, taken out the next day, and slain in His love for His people. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sin. For all who trust in Jesus, His body and blood were sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins according to the promise of the new covenant which God had made to us that one day He would perfect His people. Now we come today to the place where the writer of Hebrews completes his argument and ties it all up with a nice bow. There is a new covenant, not like the old covenant, which Israel broke. And therefore there must be a new high priest, long promised of old after the order of Melchizedek. And Christ was appointed to be that priest by oath of God Himself. And he must have a sacrifice to offer being a priest. And unlike the old animal sacrifices, which never took away sin really, Christ's sacrifice does justify, sanctify, and perfect his people. And therefore it happens once for all. And after which Christ sat down being appointed our king of peace and our king of righteousness also. And so Hebrews now ties all of this up with a few conclusory verses. Hebrews 10 at 14 reads, For by one offering Christ hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And you remember we pointed out last Lord's Day that those who are sanctified are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all according to the will of God. That is, that all that He has given Christ should come to Him and Christ should raise up and save at the last day. Then the writer of Hebrews, after this statement that Christ has perfected forever His people, he then calls as his final proof the testimony of the Holy Ghost from Scripture. Verse 15, Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. You see the writer here is referring to a testimony of the Holy Ghost from the Old Testament that God has perfected His people. That God has forgiven their sins. That God has remembered their sins against them no more. This is not something that the writer of Hebrews just made up or pulled out of thin air. The whole argument which has been laid out, which we have gone over in minute detail, starting in chapter 5 and going through chapter 10 now, the whole argument is based upon, saturated in Scripture from the Old Testament, but in particular, the precise witness of the Holy Ghost as to the fact that under a new covenant, God would forgive the sin of His people and not remember them against Him anymore. Now, some, some heretics say, Gene, so God gains knowledge and loses knowledge. He doesn't remember our sins against us anymore. Of course, the Scriptures are talking about Him recalling them against us 
legally and for the purpose of eternal judgment and wrath. That's what he's talking about. You know, when you tell someone you forgive them and you forget their sin, it doesn't mean that it literally goes out of your mind. It's a promise that you won't hold it against them anymore. And that's what the Scriptures are referring to. That is what is meant by this particular text. The Holy Ghost is a witness to us that God promised to perfect His people and remember their sins against them no more. And of course, the writer of Hebrews is referring to that new covenant which is set forth in Old Testament Scriptures. The Holy Ghost promised Himself that God would one day perfect His people even as Christ has now already perfected His people by His sacrifice. So if you go back to Jeremiah 31, you read this statement of the new covenant. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now notice that under the old covenant, which the Holy Ghost is hereby signifying will be replaced by this new covenant, people were always running around exhorting the people under the old covenant to know the Lord to obey the Lord because they didn't know the Lord, many of them, and they didn't obey the Lord. And yet the covenant required them to, and they were subject to wrath if they didn't. And not only were they subject individually, but so was the whole nation. And so there was always a constant attempt to teach the people under the old covenant the law of God and to know the Lord so that they could escape wrath and judgment. And it is in that context that the new covenant no longer requires that people be exhorted who are in the new covenant to know the Lord so that they will escape wrath because the Lord has already put His law in the hearts of His people. And all the people under the new covenant know the Lord. That's how we can divine that the new covenant is not by blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. You can't be born into the new covenant by natural birth or by being born of Christian parents or by being baptized in the church as an infant or by being an Englishman or a German or any other nationality. That's the way, sadly, a lot of people view Christianity, or as they like to put it, Christendom, as some sort of quasi-political, quasi-social institution whereby everyone's a Christian who's born in a place or born to a people or a member of a state church, etc. None of that stuff is valid for the new covenant. 
And we have to be careful to reject it. It might seem similar to the way the Old Covenant worked, but then again, the Old Covenant didn't work, did it? Didn't save anybody. Nobody could keep it. All of Israel broke it. End of story. But under the New Covenant, you see that the Holy Ghost promised to Jeremiah and that he wrote down the end of it was that God would forgive our iniquities and remember our sins against us no more. That is the new covenant that the writer of Hebrews has quoted in full in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. We read it this morning. And also, which he quotes in part now in Hebrews chapter 10, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us of this truth that God promised He would perfect His people and forgive their sins and remember them against them no more. Now notice Hebrews next says this, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now the writer has several times made reference to this new covenant previously, as we noted setting it forth fully at the end of chapter 8, after which he immediately lays out how Christ's sacrifice of Himself brings it about all through chapter 9. And this, of course, is an elaboration of what the Lord Jesus said He made the same connection between His dying and the forgiveness of sin and the new covenant actually being executed through His death that night He was betrayed. You remember He said, this is My body which is broken for you. This is My blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin. And somehow it didn't click in the minds of His disciples, but it ought to click now for all of the Lord's people that that promise of the new covenant that we read in Jeremiah just now and that Hebrews reiterated in chapter 8 and now in chapter 10, that the key to it was that a sacrifice would be made by which sin would be taken away so that God could be just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus, as Paul puts it in Romans 3. So the Lord Jesus Himself tied together His sacrifice the forgiveness of sin, and the promises of the new covenant. In fact, he said that his blood was the blood of the covenant, which had a meaning to the Jewish people. It was the offering that was made to seal and bind the covenant. And in Christ's case, as Hebrews points out, to execute the new covenant, to bring it to pass, to give it its power, and authority to carry out the terms that God had promised. But listen to that sweet verse again. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. This is the promise of God to His people. This is the word of the Holy Ghost which the writer of Hebrews is now appealing to as the final proof of his whole argument that is preceded Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Note how the writer here closes the loop with what he wrote at verse 3 above. 
Look at the first three verses of Hebrews 10. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, for the law can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Note that phrase well. There is a remembrance of sins made every year. But now, what does it say down here at verse 17? Their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So you see that the writer here is tying off a loose end that under the old covenant, there was a continual remembrance of the sins of the people. How do we know? Because they kept offering sacrifices to take away sin that could not do the job. And therefore, the sacrifices became a reminder of their sin. we got to have another sacrifice because we're still sinners against God and His law. We're still held guilty for our sin against God. But now, under the new covenant, according to the Holy Ghost testimony, there'd be a time when there would be no remembrance of sin against the Lord's people. God promised to do what the old covenant could never do, blot out the remembrance of our sin by God. And note well that built into the old covenant is God's remembrance of our sins. It's architecturally built into the old covenant, isn't it? Because the old covenant provided for these sacrifices to be made and made and made repeatedly over and over and over, annual repeated sacrifices for sin. So the very terms of the old covenant, the details of the law that God imposed on the people, mandated that there would be a remembrance built in to the old covenant for sins that could never be fully and finally atoned for. And this proves that God's promise of the new covenant is so far better than the provisions under the old covenant. There is a promised remembrance by God, do this and live, disobey this and die. That is the essence of the old covenant. But the Holy Ghost proclaimed in olden times a new covenant with a better promise, God will never remember our sins against us anymore. And you see, this is why we don't have an offering for sin, because Christ's offering, once for all, took away God's remembrance of our sins against us. So you see, in the new covenant, there is no built-in remembrance of our sins. There is a built-in remembrance of how God took away our sins. That's what the Lord's table is. It's not a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. It's a celebration for the sacrifice already accomplished which has forgiven our sins. So both covenants have remembrances built in. The one covenant, the old covenant, the remembrance is of death unto death. And in the new covenant, the remembrance is of the death of Christ unto the life of His people that He has taken away our sins and there is no more offering for sin. You see, the Holy Ghost proclaimed 
in olden times a new covenant with a better promise. God will never remember our sins against us. And up to this point, Hebrews has laid out how God brings it about with a worthy sacrifice of His dear Son for our sin laid upon Him at Calvary. So there was a remembrance of our sin so long as animal sacrifices were made over and over and over again. But now with Christ's sacrifice, there is no more remembrance of sin by God against those who are Christ's by faith in His blood. But now at verse 18, Hebrews also closes the last open issue with the old covenant. Look at what it says. Now where remission of these sins is, there is no more offering for sin. Now some people read that because they don't understand any of the argument. And they think that's a bad thing. Oh no, no more offering for sin. What are we going to do? And it's amazing people can think that, but that's clearly not what it means. What it means is, where there's remission of sin, there is no more offering for sin. Why? Because there's no need for one. The offering of Christ has done the job for all times of taking away God's remembrance of our sin. The remission of sin. That means the forgiveness of sin. Where there is remission of these sins, there is no more offering for sin. There can be no offering for forgiven sin, you see. And all the sin of the Lord's people is forgiven by the offering of Christ. Once forgiven, they can no longer be remembered against us. The logic and Hebrew's argument compels this conclusion because previously Hebrews noted this truth. We read it already, but look at that. Look at what it says at verse 2 again. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins? If the sacrifice takes away sin and purges the sinner from guilt, wouldn't the sacrifice therefore be finished? That's the argument the writer of Hebrews is making. And the answer is yes, of course. Yes, of course. And so now, at the end of the discussion, he says, where there's remission of sin, there's no more offering for sin. He's pointing out that his logic, his argument here, is consistent throughout the text. That he already said there would have been a discontinuance of animal sacrifices if they actually took away sin, but they don't, so they continue. And now he says, but with the sacrifice of Christ that brings forgiveness of sin, there can be no more offering for sin. His argument is consistent between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant sacrifices didn't work or else they would have been discontinued. The New Covenant sacrifice did work to take away sin. Therefore, there is no more offering for our sin. That is why once the promise of the new covenant to forgive and never remember our sin was executed by the sacrifice, the bloodshedding of our high priest Jesus, there is an end of the sacrifice for sin. And where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Now, Brother Gill has this to say about this particular text. Now, where remission of these is. That is, of these sins, and that there is remission of them, is evident from this promise of the covenant 
just now produced from God's gracious proclamation of it, from the shedding of Christ's blood for it, from His exaltation at the Father's right hand to give it, from the gospel declaration of it, and from the several instances of persons favored with it, there is no more offering for sin. There may be other offerings as of praise and thanksgiving, but none for sin. There is no need, as the Syriac version puts it, or there is not required, as the Arabic version puts it. There is no need of the reiteration of Christ's sacrifice, nor will He be offered up any more, nor of the repetition of legal sacrifices, nor ought they to continue any longer. And here's where Gill is so useful as a commentator that he had read and practically memorized all the writings of the ancient Jewish scholars and rabbis. And he pulls these quotes constantly. The Jews themselves say that, quote, in the time to come, the times of the Messiah, all offerings shall cease, but the sacrifice of praise, close quote. And one of their writers says, when, quote, the King Messiah, the Son of David, shall reign, there will be no need of an atonement, nor of deliverance, nor of prosperity, for all these things will be had. Isn't that amazing that ancient Jewish writers could see this in the Old Testament clearly? They just couldn't identify Christ as the fulfillment of what they saw. No wonder our Lord Jesus could be so kind to sinners where the self-righteous Pharisees could not be because God remembered the sins of the poor sinners and they knew it because the Pharisees constantly let them know it, didn't they? That was their purpose, was to go around proclaiming their own righteousness and condemning all the other people as sinners. They were right about all the other people being sinners, but they were wrong about their own selves being righteous. But they kept the law, they thought, or they claimed, or they pretended. And no doubt they kept all the sacrificial ordinances to be careful to have all that buttoned up. But you see, God also remembered the sins of the law-keeping Pharisees too. He remembered the sins of all the people, the sinners and the Pharisees. And in the text we read this morning in Matthew 9, there were publicans, there were tax collectors, there were sinners, and there were Pharisees. And the point of the text is that God remembered the sins of all of them. They're all guilty. It's just a question of which class of these poor people realized their situation and which class had deluded themselves into thinking that God didn't remember their sins against them anymore because they didn't break the law and because they kept all the ceremonial sacrifices. God remembers the sins of the law-keeping Pharisees also, but they don't even consider that, do they? And in Matthew 9 at verse 9, it says, Jesus passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now see, Matthew was one of those evil tax collectors. So Christ has sinners following him now. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and 
sat down with him and his disciples. This was a feast that Matthew held to introduce Christ to his fellow sinners, you see, of the other publicans, tax collectors, and sinners that were so condemned by the Pharisees. When the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? You see, if Christ had eaten with the Pharisees, that would have been a, a noble thing from their point of view. But Christ always knew that they too were sinners and needed a Savior. But when Jesus heard that, He said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus ate with sinners because they needed a Savior for their sin. And He was there to minister to them and to preach the gospel to them, that if they would trust in Him, He would take away their sin and He would save them unto eternal life. No amount of so-called law-keeping could save any of them, publicans, sinners, or even Pharisees. Only Jesus can save a sinner. But then Jesus, you see, condemns the Pharisees. He condemns the Pharisees from God's Word. You remember He said at verse 13, Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You think your sacrifices cleanse you of your sins, but then you condemn those who show mercy to poor sinners. Lack of mercy overthrows your sacrifices in God's sight. You see, all the self-righteous man has to offer to sinners is what? Try harder, work better, obey the law, and then followed by that sneer that says, but you know you can't because you're filthy and broken. Unlike me, unlike us. That's the way the Pharisees showed a lack of mercy to the poor sinners, you see. They sneered at people that couldn't be self-righteous like they were. And Christ condemns the Pharisees as lawbreakers for their lack of mercy. And that is why He says, He quotes the Old Testament text, to have mercy is better than sacrifice. Y'all might think you have the sacrifices all locked up. But in the process, you have declined for mercy. And therefore, you have displeased God. You've shown yourself to be a sinner, just like all these other sinners that you sneer at, that you look down on. Even though your sin might not be their sin, they aren't self-righteous like you are. But then you don't show mercy like God requires you to show. And you condemn the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, for showing mercy to poor sinners. You see, He offers even Pharisees hope, though, in the end. He says, I'm come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That would mean you, He could have said to the Pharisees. If for no other reason than for your lack of mercy and love for poor sinners who cannot keep the law like you pretend you do, Publicans and Pharisees, both all of you sinners, come to me 
Trust in me and I will save you from your sin. He has come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in His mercy, He shows the self-righteous that they too are sinners. And so they too qualify to come to Jesus and be saved by His sacrifice. And at the Lord's table, we recall the awful price that He paid to save us from our sins. This is my body, broken for you, Jesus said. This is my blood of the new covenant, shed for many for the remission of sin. Remember that song that we have sung many times in the past by Frank Alaban. Jesus, my Savior, died, nailed to the tree, cruelly crucified, stricken for me. Darkness there shut Him in. God judged Him for my sin. Jesus, my soul to win, died there for me. Jesus, my Savior, rose out of the grave. Captive He led my foes, my soul to save. Jesus in heaven now, glory upon His brow. Calleth to men below, sinners to save. Jesus my Savior lives for me above. Mercy and grace He gives freely in love. By my infirmity, tenderly moved is He. Sweet is His sympathy. Sweet is His love. Jesus beyond the sky, now on God's throne, looking with loving eye down on Thine own. Soon in that wondrous place, sweetly will sing Thy grace, gazing upon Thy face, all of Thine own. And so we see what comfort we possess because God solemnly declared Christ to be our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and execute that new covenant by which He has taken away our sin, by which He remembers our sins against us no more by which He has perfected His people who have called upon Him, and by which He has taken away all the other sacrifices and been satisfied with the once-for-all sacrifice of His dear Son and our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table and let's remember what the symbols point to. They're not the body and blood of Christ. But they remind us of the sacrifice which we're not allowed and we dare not to ever repeat, but rather which we memorialize and rejoice over with great singing. Well, let's give thanks for the bread first that points to the body. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice that Your Son was found worthy to make an offering for our sin, that He did so in His capacity as our high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and that You appointed Him that position and that duty by a solemn oath over that new covenant by which You promised to take away the sins of Your people and remember them against us no more. And we thank You for the writer of Hebrews who laid it out all so clearly and tied it all up so logically from Your Word, from the Old Testament, that what You had promised to do, You have now completed in Your dear Son, in His sacrifice in His intercession, in His perfection as our High Priest. We thank You that He left us this symbol of the bread that pictures His broken body, broken 
on Calvary's tree to set us free from all of our crimes. Bless us as we partake of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The scriptures tell us on the night that our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. To ask my Father if He'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's sing number 48 in the black book. Crowned with the victor's crown, Jesus on high we see. He won that place of high renown on Calvary's cruel tree. He bore our bitter grief beneath our sorrows sank. His bruising brought us sweet relief. Our cup of wrath He drank. Our sins and follies bound the thorns upon His brow. Behold Him there with honor crowned, the King of glory now. Number 48.